0: Last April, after Dante Wright was shot and killed by police in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota, protesters flooded the streets in what's become a sad, angry, and familiar ritual. They chanted. They marched. They yelled at the cops. They held up signs reading Black Lives Matter. But what those protesters didn't know, what they couldn't see, according to reporter Tate Ryan Mosley, is that they were being surveilled by the police.
1: I think it's definitely a reasonable concern that if you were a protester, any of those nights in the second week of April, that there was some sort of data collected about you.
0: Tate writes for the MIT Technology Review. And she and her colleague, Sam Richards, found that after the killing of George Floyd, law enforcement in Minnesota built a high-tech operation to monitor protesters, activists, and journalists. According to Tate's reporting, they used tools to scour social media, track cell phones, and amass detailed images of people's faces. People who weren't charged with crimes. People who were exercising free speech. People who became unwitting test subjects for a new kind of policing.
1: Not only is, is are we kind of in this crisis moment, we're also in a, a transformative moment, I think, for police technology. Today on the show... What Tate found in Minnesota,
0: and why it might be coming to a police force near you. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and you're listening to What Next TBD, a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stick around.
1: Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
0: Good afternoon, everyone. Chief Madera Arredondo, the Minneapolis Police Department. Uh, I first want to just. The surveillance program that Tate investigated began with a multi agency task force known as Operation Safety Net. It was announced in February of 2021, and the stated goal was for law enforcement around Minneapolis to come together and prepare for the trial of Derek Chauvin, the officer who murdered George Floyd, and for the protests that would no doubt take place around the trial. Nine different agencies from the city, surrounding counties, and the state would be part of the operation, and they would get backup from two federal agencies. The matter is that this will be a unified command It will allow all of us to be able to respond metro and region-wide if needed. Um, And it will allow great cooperation, coordination, and communication. Chief Arredondo said the operation's first goal was to protect public safety, but that there was another one as well. Um, It is also very important that we ensure for everyone's constitutionally protected First Amendment right to gather and demonstrate
1: peacefully. They had been planning Operation Safety Net for months, um, months and months before it was officially announced. No one knew how the verdict was going to come out. There was the chance for another really large scale uh, protest movement and civil unrest that might come with that like they had seen in the summer. And I think the city really didn't want to be caught flat footed. The intent was. To operate under a, a shared command structure. The idea was to increase communication, of course, you know, and and join resources in the instance that there, you know, was a need for responding to civil unrest related to the trial, that you would have better communication in place and better police uh, resources being able to kind of respond. And part of that was clearly sharing intelligence.
0: The idea of, of collaborating and sharing intelligence. How much of that came from how dramatic the protests had been around George Floyd's death and how, as you've said, officers felt they'd been caught flat-footed? Like, I'm wondering if going into Operation Safety Net, they thought, oof, man, we really, you know, we're not on the ball before, and now we need to to step it up and have everybody talking.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it was a big part of the intention for creating shared intelligence mechanisms. Police groups, particularly when they're policing shortages, leverage resources, both technological and from a personnel perspective, from different agencies nearby. And I think that's really not how we think about policing policies, right? So every police agency has their own specific policies. They have their own budgets, they are held to different laws based on um, their own local jurisdictions. And so where it gets really confusing and murky, and we saw this play out in some ways with Operation Safety Net is, okay, if I'm working for Minneapolis PD, I'm responding to something in Brooklyn Center and my commanding officer is from Hennepin County, which First Amendment policy am I supposed to follow? And, and that's not super clear. And I think that kind of extends to technology. The Chauvin trial
0: began at the end of March, but even before there was a verdict, something unexpected and awful happened. On April 11th, 20-year-old Dante Wright was shot and killed by a police officer during a traffic stop in the nearby city of Brooklyn
1: Center. So on the night of April 12th, there were protests that broke out that were not specific to the trial. Obviously, similar movement, similar theme, but they were not related to the verdict of the trial. And Operation Safety Net Responded to those protests.
0: Get back now! Get back! Footage of the night shows protesters and law enforcement facing off. You can see flashbangs and tear gas deployed. But what you can't see are the high-tech tools that Operation Safety Net was rolling out. Tate said that included cameras, facial recognition software, license plate readers, drones, social media monitoring, and geofencing. She also obtained a watch list that included photos and personal information identifying journalists and activists. One reporter who was able to get his data from the state and share it with Tate found three pages of details about where he went and what he did.
1: There was a tagged geolocation of a reporter with his name, his multiple photographs of him that was stored and then shared on a data sharing platform that we know was accessed by at least three agencies with Operation Safety Net.
0: These tools showed, on a remarkably granular level, what protesters and journalists were doing, sometimes down to the minute.
1: Those resources, once dispersed across the, I'll call it 11, agencies are pretty powerful. When combined, it's pretty remarkable the extent of the surveillance capacities and intelligence sharing that was enabled by Operation Safety Net. So let me see if I've got this right. You could have one
0: police department or one agency that is using facial recognition and another that has overhead drone shots and a third that is looking at different social media profiles. And the result, when they all get together and share that information, is a
1: pretty accurate picture of somebody and and their activity. Is that is that right? Absolutely. Policing agencies increasingly have incredible surveillance capabilities, especially those that are well-funded. They are increasingly militarized. Um, and then when they have these joint agency responses, with the intention and the real capability of sharing data and surveillance information amongst each other, what you, you end up with is, is a system that is incredibly powerful.
0: When we come back why this kind of technology is becoming more and more common, even at a local level.
1: Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. (laughs) The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com.
0: No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It may not be surprising that police are watching protests. That's part of what they do, after all. But what is new, Tate says, is the kind of reach that modern technology can give them. One product that was used in Minnesota, for example, is called Intrepid Response, which is sold on a subscription basis by AT&T. You can think of it as Slack, but for SWAT teams, so they can swap information with a swipe of a finger.
1: There's a long history of police surveillance uh, and police surveillance when it comes to First Amendment activity. What is new and novel is the technology and the accessibility of this technology to policing agencies. And that has really kind of fundamentally changed what it means to be in a public space and be protesting. Assuming that protesting in a public space can be done anonymously is naive at this point. Tate says it's incredibly easy for law enforcement to de-anonymize
0: someone. That is, cross-reference one piece of data, let's say a photo, with other sources to figure out who someone is. Now that protester is no longer a stranger in a crowd.
1: And so the ability to do risk assessments in a way that is accurate and measured while respecting the First Amendment is a pretty tall order. And I think some of the complexity with this story is that we're seeing technologies being a big part of the direction some of this is going. Where did those technologies come from? It's a whole mixed bag. We're seeing a lot of off-the-shelf technologies Intrepid is something that is sold on a subscription basis by AT and T. We're absolutely seeing a lot of private vendors with things like facial recognition. But then at the same time, you know, you're seeing some military technologies. But you know, I think clearly the direction that it's heading is private technology companies are doing a lot of the supplying. And what you're starting to see is kind of this murky intersection between what is public and what is private policing. And policing is largely being outsourced to technology. Um, And that some of the activities that were previously kind of squarely in the public sector are now not so squarely in the public sector. I think that's part of what's really interesting about this moment is the amount of technology that is very easily accessible the procurement channels and the public visibility of those procurement channels and the ultimate technology that is purchased by policing departments is really unclear.
0: I think that's an interesting thing for people to think about. The While you might expect a national agency or the police department in a big city to have a lot of money and a lot of technological capability, it sounds like you're saying that some of these off-the-shelf products make it so that a smaller town or a smaller city has a kind of technological advantage that they wouldn't have had 15 years ago.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's part of what is interesting about the data sharing component as well. So there are technologies that make data sharing easier and data munging easier. And we're certainly starting to see some of that in a very real way, especially in the last two years, you know, brokered data has become a much bigger thing. And that's also true for policing groups Um, and the ability to marry different sets of data so that, you know, if you have information about me from my cell phone provider and then information about me from the DMV, combining that data is getting easier. And so even if you're a small agency in a small town, so long as you have access to state resources you know, the state might be able to share information with you that actually comes from very, very sophisticated technology that your group didn't even purchase.
0: Operation Safety Net was supposed to wind down last year. Their website doesn't exist anymore. And a spokesman for the Minnesota Department of Public Safety told Tate it's not ongoing. But Tate found documents that suggest
1: something different. The agencies within Operation Safety Net to this day are contradicting themselves about whether or not it's ongoing or it's not ongoing. What we found was there are still active meetings with both the executive committee, uh, which includes over 30 people and the intelligence group that happen on a regular basis. In one meeting related to the executive team, they called it Operation Safety Net 2.0. It's very clear that, that regular as in weekly meetings of Uh, groups across these agencies, which include the FBI, are still happening.
0: So do you think it's safe to say that if someone went out to join a big protest in Minneapolis next week, someone's probably watching?
1: I would assume so. Absolutely. The surveillance and intelligence that came to a head with Operation Safety Net are still being applied to activists today.
0: There's a line in your story that I've been mulling over, that the idea that the protests that were intended to call attention to injustice committed by police, and you write this line, effectively served as an opportunity for those police forces to consolidate power, bolster their inventories, solidify relationships with federal forces, and update their technology. How do you square those things together, right? That this outpouring of activism seems to have created even more powerful technological and surveillance tools around it.
1: You know, I think it's a really, really hard question. I think the type of police we want in the United States needs to be a public conversation. And I it's clear that it's changing and there have been calls for it to change. And I think Technology is one part of that story. And unfortunately, it's a part of of the story that is not talked about enough and there's not enough public information about it. We need to be having a lot of conversations about the ability of technologies to de-anonymize people and what that actually means to be in public.
0: It seems to me like it's fair to note that cops have been watching protests for as long as there have been protests, or maybe as long as there have been cops. What is it that you think makes this so fundamentally different? What is it about the technology that changes this equation?
1: We've entered a stage in technology where it's not just about data collection, but it's about data amassing I feel like this conversation normally happens in the targeted ad space, but the technologies that are kind of fundamentally propping up targeted ads are not only being applied to advertising, right? And I think we see it across the board, and that includes public agencies and the police. I was told by um, one of my sources, who's an expert and studies this, um, she said that surveillance is a leash on free speech. It acts as a leash. It's a tug. And when surveillance gets to a point where the retaliation that can be enabled by that surveillance has a chilling effect, there's a real problem. And I think, you know, right now we're trusting policing groups uh, with a lot of data about us when we enter a public space and especially in movements where you're protesting the police, opening the door to retaliation that is enabled by surveillance technologies is a new page in in, in the long history of, of policing and protest in the U.S. Tate Ryan Mosley, thank you for your reporting and for talking with me. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Tate
0: Ryan Mosley writes for the MIT Technology Review. She reported this story with Sam Richards. That is it for the show today. TBD is produced by Ethan Brooks. We're edited by Tori Bosch. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer for Slate Podcasts. TBD is part of the larger What Next family. And we're also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. I want to recommend you go back and listen to Tuesday's episode of What Next, which taught me a lot about Ukraine's President Zelensky and what motivates him. All right, we will be back next week. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening.